Tag Box Talk, and this is Horse Stories with a Purpose. Who are we? We are equine educators, but we are owners. We are judges. We are competitors. We are coaches. We are volunteers. We are moms. We are horse owners just like you, and we want to share our horse stories with a purpose. Welcome to Extension Horses Tech Box Talk Series, Four Stories with a Purpose. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Heine with Oklahoma State University. And today's guest is Julie Pershman, who is actually a lawyer that practices a lot of equine law. So welcome, Julie. Well, uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. So equine law, I guess a lot of people wouldn't even know that that actually is a specialty. So could you even explain the premise of being a lawyer specifically about horses? True, I can. Um, I can tell you that I'm a lawyer now for, oh my goodness, about 34 years. And when I went to law school, there was no such concept as equine law. There were no courses. There were no books on equine law. Um, The growth of equine law has really uh, taken hold over the last few decades. But when we think of equine law, what we're talking about is the law that affects just about anything having to do with horses. And of the lawyers who practice equine law, much like me, many of us do different parts of it. Some of us focus only on tax law. Some focus on administrative and regulatory law involving, for example, racetracks and expulsions and disciplinary matters or associations like U.S. Equestrian Federation, American Quarter Horse Association, when disciplinary action is about to be taken, there are a number of lawyers who are heavily involved in representing people at those hearings or even the associations at those hearings when those occur. And then there are lawyers like me. I draft a lot of contracts in the horse industry for people and I litigate legal disputes uh, involving anything from personal injury where somebody is hurt, contract disputes, fraud issues, all different types of things. And uh, I'm happy to say I've litigated cases in 18 jurisdictions and tried cases in four states involving horses. It's a lot of fun. Oh, wow. Well, it it makes it, that sounds scary to me because I am always afraid of lawyers. (laughs) Oh, my. So so now what side um, do you, are you typically helping the defendant or the prosecution or is it just depending on who hires you? Depends on the case, actually. In regard to equine sales fraud cases or sales disputes, I've represented parties who are either the buyer or the seller. But on personal injury cases, uh, the position I generally represent is that of the people who have been sued, not the ones who are who are suing, having been injured, but the people who have been hurt. So that would be the trainers, stables, instructors, average horse owners, those tend to be my clients and I try to protect their interests when somebody sues them. So how, I guess you said there wasn't really any, any books or anything um, when you got started. So were you in, and you've had horses um, in the past and were you just kind of drawing off of your personal knowledge of horses that kind of led you down into this area? Well, it's, I really appreciate, and I'm sure you do too, that we now have the internet and we can do searches very quickly and receive a wealth of information going back you know many decades um, online sometimes even a century but when i wanted to learn about equine law i had been a lawyer for seven years i had owned a couple of horses at that point my first horse i owned at the age of 10 Uh, but at that point seven years out 
uh, as a lawyer, I thought it would be interesting to learn more about equine law. But of course, there was no internet. We were now at the early 1990s. So I would spend uh, whole weekends at law libraries, pulling up everything I could, including legal dictionaries, legal encyclopedia type things, cases, articles, um, everything I could get my hands on involving horse-related law. And I began gathering it, reading it, and recognized a few interesting things, one of which was that there were equine activity liability laws that began in 1989 in the state of Washington, moving on to Colorado. And by the early 90s, a number of states started passing them. This was one of the trends that I uh, started following very, very carefully. Uh, and so that's how I began to learn more about equine law. And then I started writing about it because nobody was really writing about it in the magazines at the time. So I began doing that. And then my first book came out in 1996, second one four years later, and I've written two more since then. There's a lot of material to share, and it can be very fascinating. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm going to confess the only knowledge I have of equine law is actually from reading your books. <laughs> well, I hope that's okay. <laughs> well, I pretty much always, you know, if I'm going to, going to tell anybody, I said this is where it came from, so you can go to the source um, for more information. So um, what are the, for the average horse owner, um, rather than if, you know, you're an association or things like that, what are some, some areas or issues that an average horse owner would sort of have to, to know about relative to law? Well, if I had to list the ones that I think are the most important, I think the average horse owner should know a little bit about contracts. The average horse owner is probably not going to spend a substantial amount of money on a horse, but it's an expensive endeavor no matter how you look at it. I mean, you would agree. Even a $10,000 horse uh, does put a dent in your pocketbook, and for some it may clear out your pocketbook. And nobody says you have to have a 20-page, single-spaced, very detailed contract for everything. I don't even draft contracts like that. But one thing I strongly would suggest is for anybody buying or even selling, get something in writing. The bare minimum would be that there is a sale of a horse. My first book had a section on the five-minute sales contract. I think that's in my newest book, too. But you can put the basics in. But the only thing that I, I would add to that is if you're the buyer, even if it's a $2,000 horse, uh, and the seller is telling you something that you think is really important, put it in the contract. If the seller insists, for example, that the horse has never been ill, lame, or uh, unsound in the many years that the seller has owned the horse, put it in the agreement and just take a look and see if the seller signs it. Because if the seller isn't going to, you know there's a problem. Is that like okay. a way to force them to be honest then? Like if they're putting their name on it, that this horse has an issues that they back off, they're like, ah, caught you. Well, I think it is. And the other reason is that over the years, I can't even count the number of calls I've received from unhappy buyers when there's nothing in writing and the seller, they claim, has made all kinds of promises, but there's nothing in writing. Is it enforceable? Well, sure, it might be. But what will the legal fees be to prove that these statements were made? The seller's going to deny it. The only way to prove it is you're going to have to go to trial where the buyer takes the stand and swears to the truth and says, they promised me all of these things. And of course, the seller will do the same. Somebody's going to have to assess credibility. So who wants to spend that kind of money? Nobody does. 
I think it's better to get it in writing, put it in the contract, and ask more questions. If the seller says, sure, the horse hasn't been lame or ill, but the seller only had the horse for a day or two, that doesn't tell you very much. So um, understand, yeah, how much the seller can promise and put it in writing. Okay, good, good tips. Um, so contracts for, for sales, then that's important because I assume there's always that, uh, you know, maybe buyer's remorse or the horse didn't quite live up to expectations, but as long as it's sort of spelled out ahead of time, then you have full knowledge, I guess. It helps. It, it may be that the contract is only part of the deal. There are technical fine points lawyers like me love to put in contracts, clauses like merger and integration clauses where we say, this is everything. If it isn't in writing, it's not contractual. But yes, putting the most important elements in the agreement, I think, um, is a great way to limit risk. And if you're the seller and you decide to sell on installment payments, which I almost always advise against, hmm. well, if that isn't put in writing about what the payments are supposed to be, when they're supposed to be made, you're only setting yourself up for trouble. And of course, that has happened with contracts that people have, um, have signed. It won't provide the details. Put the details in. Gotcha. It's worth your time. So the, the contracts then on, on buying and selling, so that's going to come up, you know, for some of us, not very often, because um, if we have our horse for several years, we may not be buying and selling maybe as frequently as other people. Um, but are there other contracts that might be disputed, like if we're boarding horses or training, are there some areas in there that typically end up being controversial for people? Sometimes they can. Let me address one. Um, nowadays, boarding stables, well, let's say, uh, let's face it, a lot of people in today's world are boarding. Uh, the days of us having the property and the ability to keep horses on our property is just not, the days aren't here. We don't have the, the, the time. A lot of us don't want to commute. So, so many people are boarding. But the issue that tends to come up, um, which is a, unfortunately a very devastating issue, is when a horse becomes injured or ill and the stable has to make a very important decision. What if the owner can't be reached? It's easier, as you know, than ever to reach the owner. We have cell phones. We can call people and usually get them. But there are always instances where the owner cannot be reached. The phone isn't working. They lost their phone. They left it somewhere. Something isn't working right. And the stable has to make a very important decision if a horse is colicking severely and needs veterinary attention, what is the stable going to do? Um, so I think that a carefully worded boarding contract can address the issue of emergencies and have an advance authorization from the owner mm -hmm. that says, if an emergency occurs and I can't be reached, you can do a few things. One, here's a person to contact and they have full authority. Number two, the veterinarian has my credit card on file you can be authorized to contact this veterinarian and do whatever the vet says, uh, all kinds of different things. Or uh, some contracts that I've drafted for boarding stables have a, a completely blanket authorization where the owner is trusting the judgment of stable management and says in the contract, if my horse becomes injured or ill and you can't reach me, certainly you will notify my insurance company. That's a provision in equine mortality policies but you have full discretion to do what the company wants and what you think is right. Um, that's a pretty broad authorization. I would hope the horse owner trusts the stable, but frankly, it might be the easiest. Think about it this way. Some boarding authorizations in that same setting will have the owner saying, okay, stable, you can author I authorize you 
to arrange for veterinary attention, but only up to $2,000. Beyond that, I don't have any permission your way. Well, what happens if the owner isn't reachable and the, the vet says it'll cost $2,500 to save this horse? We're going to need to do whatever procedure. And the stable says, well, I'm sorry, I don't have that authorization. Put the horse down. And then, of course, the owner comes back maybe the next day and asks, wait a minute, you put my horse down for $500? Oh. You can never win. <laughs> what do you has, think of that one? Has that happened? Have you been involved in cases like that? I have not. I've heard of the concept, and I could just see that happening. So I've, I've never wanted a dollar amount authorization. But I'll be candid. I had a horse back in 1990 who had a pretty significant liver problem. Her liver, I don't know what the problem was, but um, was regenerating, but had a lot of issues. And my husband and I took a vacation. And this was, of course, before the age of cell phones. So I put a note to the stable and I gave them a limit. I said, you have authorization. I think back then I authorized $5,000 if veterinary attention needs to be arranged. Please do that. And it was in writing. So they knew that they would be protected if they had to advance anything. Fortunately, nothing happened, but I put a dollar amount on back then. Yeah, and that's always hard for us to, because there's financial and then there's that emotional piece of it that in the moment we can get caught up and say, here's my credit card. But in a different moment, we might say, okay, here's the limit. So I can see right. why that might get contentious if somebody's out of town and can't be reached. Ugh, that could be a nightmare. Yes. I think the easiest thing is for the stables to require the owner to have a credit card on file with at least one local veterinary facility so that the decision is up to the veterinarian, not the stable, to decide what's right. And then, of course, if the horse has mortality insurance, the insurance company will be involved in any emergency decision, too. So those two can take care of it. Okay. So I have a question, I guess, then uh, this might be more on the, the liability and, and whether this is maybe personal or, or stable. So we all know horses get injured. It's what they do. <laughs> so so even under the best of circumstances, you, you know, sometimes they can still hurt themselves. So what happens, or is that built into your contract with a barn to the limit of what they're liable? Or I don't know, maybe I'll just pitch that to you and kind of walk us through how do you know <laughs> when you are liable and when you aren't? Those are very tough questions. Why don't we look at it this way? We can look at ways to avoid liability. We can look at what causes it. Let's talk about a type of contract that is very powerful when done right and when the circumstances are right, and that is a liability release. I'm a big believer in these documents, but I'm always concerned about people who will draft a release using a form that they found online that may not be legal under the laws of their state. Let me kind of hone in if I could on that. Um, the concept of a liability release, which we sometimes call that a waiver, is that the signer of the document is telling the facility, if it's a stable or an instructor or even an individual horse owner, they're telling somebody who's specified in that document that if the signer is injured, um, it suffers any kind of a loss, property loss, personal injury, anything, uh, that the signer of this document will release and uh, in some instances hold harmless the other parties who are mentioned. The document can be incredibly powerful if it's, if it's drafted properly, if the state enforces these documents, and most states do, uh, if the nature, nature of a claim is the type of thing that can be released and some things cannot be released, 
if the signer is of legal age, you have to be uh, of legal age, you have to be of the age of majority, typically 18. I think one state still has 21. Um, but breaking it down a bit further, what I'm talking about is a boarding contract, for example. A boarding contract can have the horse owner releasing the stable from the consequences of its negligence in the care of a boarded horse. That seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? But um, believe it or not, it's legal in most states to have that. If the stable really crosses the line and does something egregiously wrong, that may not be able to get released, but negligence can be released in most states. So that's a boarding contract related to the horse. But I believe that a facility that opens its doors to others would be wise to have a release of liability or a waiver, as I've talked about. And that's a separate document where the signer is doing just what we talked about, releasing the facility from its own liability or the liability of its employees and agents related to negligence, even related to an Equine Liability Act violation. A lot of these things can be released. It's a separate document. I don't think it belongs on its own in a boarding contract because you're going to have people on the grounds who may not be your boarding customers. Mm -hmm. And that might be spouses, friends, guests, um, anyone. So you would want a standalone separate document for people to sign. Uh, there are a number of cases, a significant number of cases around the country where courts have enforced these documents and dismissed cases that could be worth substantial amounts of money, even millions, on the strength of a document. But some of them fail, and I've written about that in my articles and my books. But I think my number one suggestion for anybody who is going to be allowing others on their property, even if it's not a business, anybody would be wise to make sure that if they use a waiver, it's properly worded, properly signed, properly stored. And if you do that, you might have a pretty powerful defense. Can I offer a quick example of how it worked? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. I was called upon, since I mentioned I do a lot of work on the defense side, I was called upon several years ago to consult in the defense of a nice couple in California. They had a horse property across from a very, very large uh, nature preserve or, or area that was uh, perfect for trail riding, just maybe thousands of acres. And they were generous people. They had about three horses on their property and they had friends and they told their friends, come on out and ride. Uh, come and uh, use our facility anytime you'd like. And if we're not here, you can saddle up and ride in this beautiful nature area. There was one person they had a lot of confidence in. They knew she was a good rider. They, they gave her that same uh, promise and authorization she took a friend riding one day on their horses, and here's where things turned for the worst. The friend of the couple who owned the horses was fine, but she brought a friend of hers who was riding another horse that was owned by this generous couple. And for reasons unknown, the horse assigned to the friend of the guest um, just on its own turned down in an area where the, the grade of the riding trail was, was pretty steep. Well, the rider fell off because the horse went down, uh, it went down this very steep area. The rider fell off and became a paraplegic very quickly. Um, that's a pretty significant spinal cord injury. Yeah. And of course, what you could just imagine what happened. The family, despite their best of intentions, the husband and wife both got sued by the injured person. All they wanted to do was let people have a nice ride in a beautiful area. And what they ended up getting uh, in response was a lawsuit. The problem was they didn't have a release. Nobody signed a release. Fortunately, the case was dismissed for a bunch of reasons uh, that I don't need to get into right now. But I can tell you California 
may not have an equine liability law, but the law isn't terrible in California on assumption of risk. But a release of liability may have given an instant um, dismissal of the case if it were properly signed, properly worded, uh, and if it were on file, because California has a pretty good history of enforcing these documents. So a document could have made the difference. Instead, the facility had to spend quite a bit of money in uh, defense of its case. Fortunately, they did well. So uh, maybe this is not really pertinent to the conversation, but it just crossed my mind. So in that case, like, so even if you're found um, not negligent or, or the case is dismissed, do you still have to cover all of the legal fees or does that, is that case by case if you end up on the wrong side financially, even if you're no longer liable? Well, in the United States legal system, it is not typically a loser pay uh, arrangement. However, in the United States, if there are statutes that have attorney fee provisions and you are the winner, well, the loser may be forced to pay. You see that in, for example, civil rights statutes. You see it in consumer protection statutes, but you don't see that in horse-related activity laws. So in the case here of the well-meaning couple who had to fight their way out of a lawsuit, uh, fortunately, well, they had the money. They were very well off, but uh, that what, that's what would happen. They would win their case and they would have to uh, effectively eat the expense. Now, of course, lawyers, when you get them on the phone, will tell you that there are some things that lawyers can do if the case were frivolous, for example. They could ask the court to uh, order the other side to pay fees. But in my 34 years as a practicing attorney, I can count on one hand the number of times a judge has been willing to say that a case is frivolous. They're not. So you do have to pay your fees for the most part. Yikes. So even if you think it'll end out well, it, it, it may not. So you're, So this documentation or these releases ahead of time essentially can really help you or be protected financially no matter the outcome. Well, some of these releases too can have an attorney fee clause. And uh, I can't assure that every state will enforce it, but I put this in all my boarding contracts, training contracts, uh, other types of contracts and releases that if litigation is brought arising out of this uh, arrangement that uh, the other party is going to pay my client's fees, the most easy provision on that, we call those attorney fee clauses, uh, is where the loser pays. You can put that in the contract uh, and you see that sometimes. And, you know, frankly, there are judges out there who are willing to enforce that language. And if so, well, that's a pretty powerful disincentive or incentive, as the case may be, to bring a suit. So I'm a believer in keeping that clause in mind for just about every contract. You can rule it out, cross it out, but at least keep it in mind. Because knowing that there is a risk of being forced to pay the other's fees might uh, serve as a you know, disincentive to suing. Sure. Oh, that's that's great advice. So I have some uh, other questions that you had mentioned, you know, kind of with this boarding contract and liability. You used two terms, you call uh, negligence and then something that was egregious. So how does one walk the line? What is considered something that would be maybe waived under this negligence clause versus an egregious mistake or not following through on the whoever's part? Well, I can give you an example. I took a case like that to the Court of Appeals. I won at the trial court level and I won at the appellate level. This was a case where I represented a horse rental operation, the type where uh, I used to call it a Hertz rent-a-horse. 
uh, although clearly that wasn't the name of it. <laughs> it was a facility in Michigan, Southeast Michigan, that um, it was a rare facility for its time because there are very few horse rental operations. But for a fee, you could rent a horse and ride in a group for an hour. Well, the case involved a regular customer of the uh, rental stable. She was a pretty good rider, but she oddly was able to ride with platform shoes. Think, uh, think Elton John, uh, pinball wizard shoes, maybe not quite as big of a platform, but these are shoes where you don't just have a heel, you have this chunk underneath where your, your ball of your foot is. And they let her ride with those shoes. Some may disagree and say that's not safe. This facility felt that it was okay. What ended up happening one day, and this was probably her 50th ride at the stable, she was there a lot, um, was that she was attempting to dismount a horse and her foot, uh, her foot somehow got caught in a shoe. Uh, I'm sorry, her shoe got caught in the stirrup. I misspoke that one. The stable had an assistant holding the horse so the horse would stay put while she tried to dismount. But for reasons unknown, the stable's worker got distracted and the horse was able to move a few steps ahead. And this customer with uh, the shoe she was trying to disengage from the stirrup fell over and suffered a back injury. Her argument when she sued was that the stable was not only negligent, but was grossly negligent. I'll break that down in a moment. But she signed a release, and it was a very thorough release that the stable required all of its customers to sign. So I went to court after taking her testimony, and I asked her, I showed her the document, did you sign this? And she admitted, yes, she did. She signed it many times. Every ride she took, they gave her a new one. We probably could have given her a stack of these but I took a few of them out. She read it. She admitted she read it, and she admitted it was her signature. So I went to the court, and I asked the judge to throw the case out. But there was something else that she said. She said the stable was negligent first because the customer, the um, stable worker was distracted, and the stable worker should have been completely focused on her as she held the horse for dismounting. So that was an argument of negligence, and the theory was, that a reasonable stable that rents horses to the public should have more attentive staff. Because if the staff were attentive, in this case, the assistant for the stable, the horse never would have taken some steps and the lady wouldn't have fallen. But then she kicked it up a notch. Michigan law, like many states, says there are things that you cannot release away. One of them is gross negligence or willful and wanton misconduct. And that is a, a, a degree of wrongdoing that is so severe that it isn't just negligence where you had an inadvertent mistake. Uh, gross negligence, willful and wanton misconduct involve almost an intent to injure someone. It's not exactly intentional, but it's pretty close to it. Mm -hmm. It is a severe degree of recklessness and a degree of inattentiveness that is more than accidental. So the injured plaintiff's lawyer, as I went to court trying to throw the case out on the release, because you can release negligence, said, wait a minute, judge, wait a minute, hold on. Uh, hold on, because he said, uh, this is a case of gross negligence, and I don't think that can be released away, so hold the case. Here's the problem. Let's take you back to the plaintiff's deposition. When I'm gathering evidence, among the many questions I asked her was, uh, do you believe the stable intended, the worker that is intended to harm you, as she lost her attention? Oh, no, no, I think she just uh, got distracted. Somebody was talking to her, okay? Okay. Uh, do you think anybody you know, did anything um, other than the inattentiveness 
is there anything else that you think that the stable did wrong? Oh, no, everything was fine. So my response is I'm flashing now you taking you back to court. My response in that setting was, judge, this does not add up to a case of severe wrongdoing. The plaintiff admitted nobody intended to hurt her. She admitted that it was sheer inattentiveness and uh, it was a mere accident. And the court agreed. And the court said, I'm throwing the case out on the strength of this liability release because the negligence claims can be released. And the court said, any claims of willful and wanton misconduct and gross negligence don't have the support. Case dismissed. And that was what happened uh, as a result of that. The plaintiff went to the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals agreed. The case didn't present the types of pretty significant facts you would need to survive the, the liability release. So I guess what the takeaway is, these documents can be very, very powerful and it saved the stable some, you know, I don't know how much it would have been, but a lot of money because this woman sustained a back injury, lost some work, uh, had to see doctors and had a pretty big disruption in her life. So strongly recommended to learn more about releases. Wow. So, and I, I hear this a lot from, from horse people. Sometimes we're really afraid uh, because we hear stories like that. And that terrifies me like, oh my goodness, if I just make a slight mistake, I might be subject to a lawsuit. So your advice is, uh, is to consult with somebody, you know, even if you're just an average owner, I mean, does everybody have to have one of these or? Well, I, realistically, everybody can. On the other hand, it's difficult to um, justify the use of them, even though it's legal in, in most states. For example, if you were selling me one of your horses, because I am on the market pretty soon for a horse, and you told me this is a bomb-proof horse, perfect for you, and then you whipped out a liability release and asked me to sign it, that kind of uh, dis not only disrupts the flow, but it kind of makes me wonder, really, is there something I should know here? But in, in reality, it may be a standard thing that you do. So people may find that the circumstances don't call for it. As a lawyer, my position is it may be uh, an awkward thing to present, it may seem too businesslike for, for an average horse owner, but it can be done in most states and it's recommended. But I do want to add one more thing. People who sign these documents can and do file lawsuits. I gave the example of one where a suit was filed, but it was thrown out of court and then thrown out on appeal. The, the best recommendation I would give for um, the listeners and anybody who's learning more here, consider using a release, use the most, uh, the best draft one you can prepare that conforms to your state law, but have liability insurance as a backup. Because when or if a lawsuit is brought, do you want to spend the money on legal fees? Let your insurance company get a lawyer and do that for you. That's what the insurance will do. They'll pay the money for a lawyer. And then if it's a covered claim up to your policy limits, you've got coverage. That's pretty powerful. And there's, there are a lot of companies out there that will insure horses and horse activities. So I would say that the two do go hand in hand. That's great, great advice. So uh, I have two questions as we're kind of running a little bit on our, our time. So one, mm -hmm. I guess, and I certainly would not constitute this as legal advice. This is sort of my just professional horse advice um, that I always give people is that if you can predict that something's a bad idea, you shouldn't allow it to happen. <laughs> so my job as a professional mm -hmm. is to understand you know, horse nature and, and all of those things and 
do what I can to make that situation as safe as possible. And if I fail to do that, that's what sort of gets me in trouble. Is that a sort of okay logic in that statement? Hmm, that's a tough one. Um, because I've seen lawsuits over some of the most bizarre things in my career. And if you think that you are doing everything appropriately and you are proceeding reasonably, unfortunately, that doesn't stop some lawyer from disagreeing. And even worse, um, it doesn't stop some expert in the horse industry, maybe even somebody you know, from looking at the circumstances and saying, what in the world was she thinking? That was terrible, that was wrong, and I'm gonna testify that this person uh, departed from a standard of care. But let's get realistic here. If a person is trying to avoid the risk of injury and the risk, of course, of liability that could follow, um, it does make sense to do a couple of things. And you kind of touched on that. One is sometimes think things through before you do them. Um, if you're going to be lending uh, your bridle out to someone else, and if it's a Western bridle with Chicago screws, take a moment and tighten the screws up. Put Loctite in the screw, or as some would do, nail polish to make sure that they're tight. Take the extra time to think safety, and in the process, you, are, you won't know what you have uh, eliminated as far as a risk, but you probably have eliminated a significant risk. It's these stopping everything moments. It's these minor uh, just thinking moments to, to think safety that can really make the difference. So getting back to what you're saying, um, if you are willing to stop for a moment and think about what you can do in a situation to improve uh, the experience and prevent the, the risk of injury, it is worth it. It's when we rush ahead and let our guard down that things can happen. Um, things that may seem like non-issues can become issues. Case I worked on, somebody was leading two horses in from the pasture to go into the barn for their uh, evening feeding. A lot of us do that all the time, but needless to say, the two horses both spooked and the, the handler could only hold one of them. And then the one horse that ran off ended up running a person over who got hurt. Wow. The lawsuit claimed don't lead two horses. A lot of us do that all the time. So it's the effort we undertake, that thinking process to think safety that can make all the difference. Yeah, I know. I actually was called to testify, I guess, as the professional that says, yeah, you should have known better. And I mean, that's my, I guess when they call upon you, you get subpoenaed for something like that. You know, something as simple of, you know, should you have a hard head on if you're on blacktop? And it's like, yeah, you should. Like, I, I know that. And so I can't help those horse owners out because that is something in that thought process that probably should have happened. Sure. So final question as we're uh, wrapping up here. So I can't imagine there are a lot of equine lawyers out there. Maybe I'm wrong, but how does one find somebody that might have uh, similar to your background and specialty? There are a few ways. Of course, the easiest is to go on a search engine and type out your state and equine lawyer and vet out the uh, responses that you see. Some law firms, I found will list every possible area of practice on the search engines. And when you begin to read their bios, you realize they don't have anything to do with horses. <laughs> so scrutinize what you find. And then there's more. Sometimes lawyers with an interest in equine law, um, whether or not they have an active practice, but they have an interest, 
will gravitate to large associations like your state horse council. So you may want to call someone from your state horse council and ask if they happen to know of any lawyers. And sure enough, there may be a lawyer on the board, a lawyer who has assisted them, and that might be a great way to find someone. Other ways, well, uh, nowadays there uh, are organizations of equine lawyers, but they're not very well known. Um, for example, there was a group, I think it's disbanding, called the uh, American College of Equine Attorneys. We had a lawyer list, but unfortunately that website is going. The other suggestions would be uh, equine lawyers are not, not necessarily categorized as animal lawyers, but in a way they are. You could look at your state bar association's website to see if your bar association has an animal law committee or section. And if so, you'll find it on the website, look up someone from the site and ask if maybe the chair of the section, do they know anybody who does equine law? And if the person does animal law, they might. So that's another way to find out. But the final point I would make is um, make sure the lawyer that you find has the degree of experience that you're comfortable with. Make sure that the rates that he or she will charge uh, are, is, is a reasonable rate. Uh, some lawyers charge, for example, a flat fee for contracts. That's what I do. Others will say, I'm going to charge you as much time as it takes to draft. That could be an expensive proposition. So ask some tough questions and make sure you find the right lawyer. Perfect. Well, I guess I actually have one more question for you. So you said you had a number of uh, books and information available for horse owners. Do you want to tell us um, how to find them if someone is interested in, in learning a bit more? Sure. Uh, first, I have a blog. It's, uh, it's pretty comprehensive. It hasn't been updated in recent months, but it's going to be updated very shortly. It's equinelawblog.com. My, my law firm puts that up, and it has been around since 2011. Uh, it's, it's a pretty comprehensive blog. I think it's the most one out there. Um, in addition, the American Bar Association just published my newest book, in October of 2019, it's available very, very soon. It will be available by Amazon. Uh, I think it's going to be on Amazon in August of 2020. The book is called Equine Law and Horse Sense, which if anybody knows me knows that was the title of my very first book back in 1996. Apparently ABA liked the title, but it is a very comprehensive 376 page book. For information on it, you can go to equinelaw.info and that will provide some basic uh, background on the book and, and what it covers. Uh, or just simply look it up. It's through the American Bar Association. And it is a uh, pretty detailed book. And it's probably the last one I'll be publishing on equine law. Everything I know is in this book. Perfect. And it's on sale in August. Can we pre-order it? Good question. Right now, it is exclusively for sale through the American Bar Association. So anybody who's really curious could look up ABA publishing and buy it through the ABA. Um, in addition, I don't know about pre-orders, but ABA is going to be listing it on Amazon. So I would just say, if you want to order through Amazon, just keep checking. It'll probably be available in August. I doubt they're doing pre-orders yet, but it is for sale for anybody who wants to go to the American Bar Association website. Well, I really appreciate uh, the time you spent with us this morning. Um, great information. It's a deep subject, but I know we all have to know about it because uh, there's a lot of law and liability and contracts involved in the horse industry. No doubt about that. And my motto is um, understand the risks, 
and protect yourself. Well, thanks again, Julie. And this again has been our Tech Box Talk Series, Four Stories with a Purpose. Thank you for having me.